You know, the hindrances are something that we, um, we always talk about on retreat because they're always here with us, um, just really without exception. Um, we may um, think that we can hold them in abeyance for a while, that, that they'll give us a little reprieve, but um, sooner or later, generally sooner, they all crop up. And um, they all have a way of playing with our uh, practice that can make things difficult for us. So this retreat will be no exception, and um, I'll be happy to talk about the hindrances um, more briefly than I usually do. Now, the first uh, thing we often run into, and I'm going to speak about the hindrances here uh, actually as they impact your meditation practice, not as they might impact your, your daily activities or other things that you may be doing, and they can also have an impact there. But specifically, I want to talk about the effect of the hindrances on your meditation practice. So the first of these uh, hindrances is sense desire. And um, this can occur in so many ways. You know? It can actually be part of some of the other hindrances. For instance, the hindrance of uh, sloth and torpor. You know, it's also sensed as uh, sleepiness or a kind of feeling uh, leaning into the luxury of what it would be like to go take a nap right now. Wouldn't that be really nice? So then we have sense desire, not just the notion of sloth and torpor. Um, we might have sense desire focused on um, what's for lunch? What's for dinner? Do I have some chocolate in my room? Um, any number of things. It could be focused on um, uh, the desire for, if I just had that other Zafu, I'm sure I would be so much more comfortable, but then there are no more Zafus and you're stuck. So um, it's easy to see how disruptive this can be to our practice. Right? I remember when I went on my first retreat, um, it was in Yucca Valley uh, with Jack Cornfield. And I had some idea of what retreat was, or at least in my mind, because I'd been a Catholic for a long time and uh, had had some retreat experience in that, in that world. So what I expected was it was going to be very quiet, very, very quiet. And um, maybe I could do some mm, contemplative reading and it would be extremely peaceful. And, and that's what I thought and that's what I came with, the expectations I came with. And so there, I was in the middle of the desert. It was freezing cold. There was a freeway about, I don't know, 200 feet behind me, full of cars day and night. Uh, and the, it was so windy that the doors of the meditation hall kept blowing open and blasting this freezing air into the room. And I was sitting right in front of these doors. So my expectations for retreat uh, we're not being met at all, not being met at all. And I had a lot of uh, sense desire arising and a lot of aversion arising, which is second, uh, the second of the hindrances that we're going to talk about. That is the things I don't want to have to experience while I'm having this perfect meditation retreat. So uh, when I was there, I, uh, uh, I had an interview just as you did today. I think it was a group interview and um, I was pretty darn upset and angry and didn't know what they thought they were doing, having all of this noise and discomfort when that's not what I expected at all. And so I said my little piece and uh, the teacher looked right at me and said, just keep following your breath. Oh. 
which uh, didn't seem like I just could have gotten a little more, you know, with that. But that's all that was offered. <laughs> so, for reasons when I think about it, I still don't understand. I just went back in the hall and followed my breath, and I did that for the rest of the week. And, and to this day, I, when I think back about that, I kind of have this feeling of, why didn't I just get up and leave? You know, it was really uncomfortable. But for some reason, it, it took, it stuck with me, and um, as hard as it was, and, and so I still haven't learned to leave. I'm still hanging around here. <laughs> kind of a slow learner, I guess. So, um, I think, you know, we all um, have this pretty clear idea of what the effect of sense, desire, and aversion can have on our ability to concentrate the mind and to calm and quiet the mind so that we can begin to have that meditation experience that we all think we should be having. Um, so there are some things that you can do to work with this, and I'm going to talk about that just a bit later when we start talking about the seven factors of awakening. But I want to touch on the, the remaining two, um, excuse me, three uh, hindrances. So uh, the next one is uh, the infamous sloth and torpor, um, which from group interviews today, I think there was a fair amount of that going on, often manifesting itself as just sleepiness, but often masking some other things that are going on. There's really uh, nothing um, particularly um, about sleepiness itself that is uh, um, not desirable. Or uh, Well, let me say this, especially, I think I mentioned this, that the first couple of days of retreat, I would be surprised if you weren't sleepy. I would be very surprised. We all come from very busy lives. Um, and the busyness that we have in our life often masks the incredible tiredness we have in the body. So that when you come to a place like this where there are no expectations and you're completely out of your normal environment, your body knows how to tell you, you know, how tired it is. So the first two days especially can be full of sleepiness and drowsiness. And um, I think we pretty generally now um, uh, give a lot of... Uh, allowance for taking a nap because you're kind of useless if you're that tired and you're making yourself miserable. So there is that kind of sleepiness. And, um, but sloth and torpor really covers a, a broader range and uh, a range of things that can be dealt with and should be dealt with in a different way other than, than napping. So sloth and torpor, um, I, I hesitate to use this word, but I'm going to anyway, can involve uh, something I will just call laziness. We just uh, think that we would be much more comfortable sitting in our room than coming up here and putting ourselves on the cushion and making ourselves uncomfortable and, and feeling some pain and having to go through the difficulty of sitting, even though that's actually why you came here. But um, it's just a little harder than you want to deal with. And so maybe I'll just take this nap, even though you don't really need a nap, you're not really physically tired, your body doesn't need that. But uh, the mind um, is giving you this message that says, it's just really too much work to go up there. You know, take it easy, take it easy, you'll be fine. Well, so this is a completely different thing. Well, this is not something that uh, finds 
resolution in the, the idea of taking a nap. This is actually a situation where we need to summon some energy, right? And that we'll also talk about when we talk about the seven factors of awakening. So these two lists that we have in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta uh, tend to work together in many ways. The next hindrance we talk about is sort of the opposite of the self and torpor, and that is restlessness. Right? Uh, somebody uh, described uh, to us in a group um, practice uh, session this morning how they just had all of this kinetic energy. You know, they were just like kind of trembling and on the edge and full of just this energy that sort of didn't have anywhere to go. You know? So it can manifest itself in that kinetic way, feeling it in the body. Um, it can manifest itself in the same kind of energy, but on a mental level, a lot of restless mental energy, the so-called monkey mind, just the uh, uh, inability to really settle. Right? So, again, some remedy for this will be found when we talk about the seven faculties. So the last uh, of the hindrances is doubt. And this uh, has a great number of uh, descriptions and uh, explanations. One is just uh, the simple doubt about the practice. You know, is this really, is this really what it's trumped up to be? You know, this Buddhist stuff. Maybe it's not for me. Or it can also be doubt about your own abilities. You know, can I actually? do all this meditation stuff and sit here and can I do the study that might be necessary and, and so forth. So that, that kind of doubt can occur. And, uh, and this as an antidote, the most effective antidote, I believe, is actually not listed in the seven fa faculties of, of awakening. But to me, the, the surest uh, antidote for this is faith. It's a sort of non-thinking antidote um, you all have faith in this practice, some degree of faith, even if this is the first time you ever went on a retreat, even if this is the first time you ever sat, you have some faith, enough to get you here, you know, and that can be sufficient. It's enough that keeps you here long enough to do the investigation that you need to do to know for yourself that there's something here, that there's something working. So in that, um, in that sort of environment, um, we can have some comfort in the dis-ease dis that uh, doubt may bring and use this element of faith to say, so far I've seen some things here that, that really are compelling and I'm going to trust that and investigate it. I don't have to think about it and find the solution by thinking about it because it's this kind of thinking which is going to be completely in your way when you're on the cushion. It's just a kind of thinking that's going around and around and around because you don't really have the means to find the resolution, you know, to find the answer to this. The Buddha is very clear that we have to find our own answers. We are our own teachers. Right? And this is what makes this type of faith different from the kind of faith that you may have grown up with, which is the faith that says, Somebody said it, I have to believe it. I'm compelled to believe it. Those are the rules, right? I don't have to have any proof for it. There can't be any proof for it, maybe, but I'm supposed to believe it anyway. It's not that kind of faith. 
It's simply um, the faith that you demonstrate to yourself is true. There's a wonderful teacher, a Thai teacher, uh, Buddha Dasa. Uh, some of you have probably read some of his works and are familiar with him. And he says there are two fundamental uh, elements uh, in Buddhist practice, which must always be there if it's to be called Buddhist practice. And the first of those is it must have to do with the relinquishment of suffering. That must be present. But it also said there, there is no other thing that the Buddha teaches but the end of suffering. So if there is a teaching that's not involved in the end of suffering, it's not teaching from the Buddha. And the second thing he says is the teaching must be transparent enough, obtainable enough, that you can prove it on your own. You don't have to take the word of anyone else. You can prove it on your own, through your own practice, through your own investigation. Essential elements. This is much different than the, the, we're not saying, you must believe what the Buddha said no matter what. That's not the kind of faith we're talking about. You get to see for yourself. And that part of it, the seeing for yourself part of it, is going to be something that's included in the seven faculties of awakening. Let me see if I have anything else I'm supposed to say about the uh, hindrances. All right. So the seven faculties of enlightenment are another list which occurs in the um, Satipatthana Sutta. And um, this is a list not unlike others. Uh, with, in, with which the Buddha will say, if you do everything in this list, you'll be guaranteed awakening. Right. So we'll go through the list just uh, quickly to begin. And uh, the first item on the list is mindfulness. And the second is investigation, investigation of mind states. Right? Uh, the third is effort, where we are. And then there is a rapture, or PT, and tranquility, concentration, and the final element is equanimity. So I want to go through these um, kind of one by one, and at, where it's appropriate, relate them to working with the hindrances. Now the first one is, of course, mindfulness. Right? And uh, this occurs in quite a few lists. It has uh, several uh, suttas completely focused on this element of mindfulness. And um, the, the characteristic of mindfulness is a kind of non-superficiality. That is, mindfulness goes deep. It wants a kind of knowledge that is not just resting on the surface. It's very curious. And it's very dedicated to seeing exactly what is going on, to knowing what is in front of it. In fact, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha describing the, simply the practice of meditation says, the monk goes into the woods, sits at the root of a tree, and puts mindfulness in front. A very uh, well-known teacher, Upandita, um, 
who taught in the West for a number of years, um, uses a term to describe uh, mindfulness, the, what he calls a manifestation of mindfulness, how it occurs, that is not used that often uh, anymore. And that term is confrontation. And I, I think we kind of back away from mindfulness because we view confrontation in a kind of a negative way. But in his understanding, this is not negative at all. It simply speaks to that putting it right here, right in front of you, looking at whatever it is, the object of meditation, the breath, hearing, whatever arises for you of looking straight at it. Right? Because you want to know what it is. You want to know what it is. Right? So if you're sitting and some kind of sadness arises, you look right at that. We don't turn away from it. Right? And it can be things, some things, uh, these things that we're looking right at, because we're looking at them mindfully, can be very difficult to, to look at. So what I find very useful um, is a, a phrase that um, is bound to be used here a few more times, I think. And that is, I love you, keep going. It can be very difficult to be in this relationship with, with difficult things when they arise. So this phrase allows us some reassurance right? that we are cared for by ourselves, that we nourish ourselves, that there is compassion for ourselves in this situation, which is difficult, which we are regarding with mindfulness, which we're going to look at you know, and stay with for as long as it's appropriate. We're going to stay with that difficult thing. Keep going. Keep going. So there is not really this sense of um, a battle going on, uh, this notion of confrontation. It's simply our willingness to be completely with whatever arises, whether that's just the breath, to stay completely with the breath, to know the breath as fully as we possibly can, each inhalation, each exhalation, or whether in that process a feeling of great gladness arises, to be completely with that until it passes away to be completely with a, a sense of dread or anxiety or whatever it is that arises, our willingness to be present and to stay present. Right? That notion of mindfulness. So uh, another way that uh, he describes this is uh, non-disappearance. Right? So we don't try to make the thing go away. The thing that we're, we're paying attention to, that we're trying to regard with mindfulness, we agree with ourselves to keep the object in view. Whatever arises, we say, I'm here. I'm going to stay with this. Right? A great deal of what goes on when we're doing this simple activity of sitting on a cushion and following the breath is trying to build that muscle to stay. Now, if, if I just describe to you the process of meditating and say to you, well, you're going to sit on this little pillow and, or, or in a chair maybe, and I just want you to kind of like follow your breath. That's really not very exciting, you know, put in, in that way. I mean, it's boring, and I'm sure you've had, all had times when you thought, this is really boring. Um, so so how, how do we develop this staying power? Well, the basic instructions for this whole process is to take that object, to pick it up, and we have a Pali word for this, vitaka. We put the attention right on the breath or right on the hearing. Whatever the object is, we place it right there. 
right? And we agree to stay there. There's a Pali word for that also, vichara, a sense of rubbing, of just continuing to contact that, to be there with whatever it is that's arising, in that case, the breath. And so as inconsequential as this notion of following the breath may seem, the ability to develop this uh, focus, this, this understanding of how important it is to stay with the phenomena, is how we build our capacity for mindfulness. Right? So mindfulness, uh, as far as its relationship to the hindrances, is useful in working with all of the hindrances. Right. And I think that'll become apparent as we go on. In fact, without mindfulness, the other remedies that, that might be afforded by the seven faculties are really not going to work at all. Right? So the second um, of these is investigation. Right? Investigation of the mind states. So mind states themselves are another of the um, four foundations of mindfulness. And I uh, will probably be talking about those later in the week. but. Um, uh, basically, the, uh, simply we would say, uh, how is the mind now? The mind is concentrated, the mind is roaming, the mind uh, is focused, the mind is kind of dispersed. So just these kind of basic notions of how is the mind right now? The mind is at ease, the mind is at peace, the mind is disrupted. Right. So this, this second faculty of investigation speaks to, let's go see what's going on. Now, what is this? Some teachers substitute the word investigation uh, with the word intimate or intimacy, which I really like a lot. So the, the sense is, you know that we're in, by now that we're not in a process when we talk about investigation of doing some kind of scientific analysis of how all this works and we're really going to investigate it, go to the library, get some books on why I feel sad or whatever it is. No, we're just going to be with that. Right? We're going to regard it mindfully. We're going to stay with it. Right? So, so that staying um, leads to, naturally, this uh, kind of investigation, which is just in, embodied really in the simple question what is this? What is this? Right. So this question, um, I think if we work with it, allows us to get very close to whatever it is that's happening. Right. So if it's even the breath, and we're investigating the breath, I think the most successful way to do that is to get very close to the breath, to become very intimate with the breath, to know exactly when that in-breath begins and how long it is and when it ends and is there a space and then when does the out-breath begin, become really, really close to it, you know, to develop that mindful capability so that then when we're working with something that's a little more calling us a little more strongly, like anxiety or whatever it may be, we're able to bring that same kind of attention, right? that same kind of closeness of intimacy. I want to really know this. Perhaps you can have the sense of how this knowing might be different. If you just think for a minute about um, if you had a feeling of sadness and how it would be if you started thinking about that feeling of sadness and what that, that might activate. 
So you have a feeling of sadness, and then there's a memory associated with that, and there's some links that are developed, and you start seeing the faces of the people who caused this, and, and so there's all of this proliferation that occurs you know, in that process. Whereas developing intimacy with that sadness um, it creates a much different environment. It creates that environment of closeness, of feeling. What is this really like you know, in my body? What is this really like in my heart? How can I move this? And that, how can I move this, moves us to the next of the faculties, actually, which is energy, virya, sometimes called courageous effort. So by now, perhaps you, you're having a sense that these different faculties actually flow into each other without a, a specific direction on our part. Mindfulness arises around the object, whatever is there, and with the interest uh, developed in mindfulness, that brings us to naturally want to investigate, see what's happening, draw closer. <coughs> and that very act of drawing closer creates energy. Right? We instinctively know that we need the energy to have this investigation, and so it's there for us. It just <laughs> arises. It's conditioned by our willingness to do the investigation. This uh, courageous effort uh, has much more the aspect of patience. Right? It's not a courageous effort about um, sort of going to war with something or fighting with something or arguing or uh, even of uh, a sense of um, uh, an effort that is simply an, uh, an effort to kind of grab a hold of something. It's just patience, just patience. Um, patience in the face of difficulty, patience in the face of suffering. Again, to just stay, to just stay. So then there's a cycle, right? We have this cycle of intimacy, investigation, more energy arising, right? Which in, the, in our practice will have its own rhythm of rising and falling, right? We will uh, begin the investigation, energy will be generated, and that, and that will fall away, and we'll lose interest, or will pass away, just as we know all things do pass away, right? So we stay with it as long as it seems to be productive, it seems to be serving us. This uh, development of uh, energy, this ability to uh, continue to uh, be patient and develop this courageous mind, um, because we begin to see that there is the possibility of success tied with this, our own ability to stay in difficult situations, there is a sense of gladness that comes from that. Right? <coughs> Just as there is from any time we perform a task and we perform it well, when, when that has occurred, we feel good. Right? We feel good about that. So we have a certain delight, a certain sense of satisfaction. Um, Sometimes there is a, a physical feeling accompanied with this, which is a, a kind of lightness, a kind of ease in the body. Right? This kind of mellows out uh, quite naturally into uh, a sort of softer, deeper uh, form of ease, which is called pasadi or tranquility. Right? And again, 
the tranquility is conditioned by this initial uh, sensation of uh, rapture, which is a strong feeling, but it diminishes to something that actually is a much deeper feeling of happiness and satisfaction. A real calmness, a real lessening of the agitation that we might feel in the body and in the mind. So as this agitation diminishes in the body and the mind, we might see the onset of the next faculty, which is concentration. So samadhi, concentration, um, flows naturally from this, these conditions that arise, the condition of tranquility. As uh, we become calmer, as the mind is less agitated, we're more apt to work in this field of concentration, which is the activity of collecting the mind. Right? The mind not so dispersed, not so activated. You know, the mind collecting itself. The mind collected is a mind possessed of peacefulness and stillness. It's no longer agitated by what's going on around it. Right? In fact, at this point of concentration, the hindrances are not present. The mind is not agitated by sense-desire, it's not agitated by aversion, it's not agitated by sloth and torpor or restlessness. Doubt is not present. The mind is at peace. It's still. The natural thing to flow from this is the last of the faculties, and that's equanimity, upekkha. So, I kind of really love this uh, way that Upandita talks about this. He has a very simple definition, which I have never seen anywhere else. He says that the function of equanimity is to fill in where there is a lack and to reduce excess. So, oftentimes, uh, you know, equanimity is... Um, is described as this place of no agitation, a place where of contentment, um, a place where um, things are balanced. Right? We're not torn one way or the other. We understand at a very deep level um, the, uh, the, the, the kind of movements that are occurring from moment to moment, and we're at ease with that. Right? And this notion of Filling in where there's a lack uh, indicates uh, to me a description of equanimity where there's some activity taking place in the mind. You know, the mind understands where these imbalances occur and it takes care of them. It fills in where there's a lack. It regards the excess and it reduces it. And so there is this balance which occurs. And I think that um, this is actually something that we can feel you know, that we can really know is occurring um, when equanimity is present. So these are the 
seven factors of awakening. Perhaps uh, just in hearing them, you can see where they might uh, be useful with uh, particular uh, hindrances. For instance, it's said that um, the hindrances, uh, which are quite agitating, so the hindrance of uh, restlessness, for instance, is best served by cultivating the faculties of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, working with those. Because it doesn't make sense, actually, to uh, decide that the, a good way to deal with restlessness might be to um, investigate it very deeply and create a lot of energy. You know? Well, actually, we want to kind of calm this down. And then the reverse is true for the uh, hindrances that are um, uh, that have less energy themselves. So sloth and torpor uh, might best be served by bringing some investigative interest and and increasing energy, you know, in that way. So we can see even in the simple um, uh, dealing with the hindrance of uh, sloth and torpor, for instance how the antidote to this is all about bringing energy. You know? So we talked about this a bit yesterday. Um, how do we deal with sleepiness? Well, we bring energy, first of all, into the body by reinvestigating our posture. Right? And we engender some intimacy in the body so that we can know exactly how it's holding itself and how we might get back into that posture that we know uh, is more upright and allows us to concentrate in a, in a more effective fashion. And in doing so, we summon energy into the body. And this offsets the qualities of sloth and torpor or sleepiness. And the next possible rem remedy might be to open the eyes slightly. Again, an increase in energy because now we have more to deal with. You know, we have more things coming at us and so we pay more attention. Right? Working with uh, the, the, the more active areas, again, restlessness, can see that cultivating tranquility you know, is the most appropriate way of dealing with this. So how do we do that? Oh, we can become very interested in the breath and very interested in a way of observing the breath, which is much more about letting the mind rest on the breath. Right? There are many ways that we can talk about um, paying attention to the meditation object. And in many ways, meditation practice is a craft. There are actually a lot of different ways of approaching how we meditate, which might be useful and different you know, at different times. So in this uh, uh, trying to uh, calm the mind, to calm the restless mind, and, uh, and use, utilize tranquility to help us do that, we might adopt a way of uh, being with the breath that is much more restful, much more uh, full of ease. You know, that we're sitting, that we know the breath in the body, and we have this attitude of just letting the mind rest with the breath. Right? Just rest there. Not so actively connecting it as we described before, that is, you know, paying attention to every part of the breath activity, you know, but simply resting the mind there, allowing that to happen. 
the suttas on, there are a number of suttas on the seven faculties. And um, uh, one thing they all indicate is uh, mindfulness is useful everywhere. Mindfulness is useful everywhere. So how is it that we know which of these remedies to apply for a particular hindrance? What might help us the most in our practice? Right. So mindfulness helps us with that. Bringing attention to whatever it is that's arising. Perhaps we are having a lot of difficulty, the mind is drifting away constantly, and we really like it to be um, more attached to the breath, more at ease, not roaming around so freely. And so it's mindfulness that, that tells us what I really need here is a way to offset this restlessness that I'm feeling. Right? So then we're more apt to apply a, a remedy that will actually work. Or we may apply the remedy that we think should work, and we find out that it doesn't. We can be discerning about that. There's always wisdom present with mindfulness. So we can say, well, that didn't work so well, so maybe I should ramp up my investigation, you know, my sense of intimacy with this object. So all of this is, I think one of the things that's important in all of this is that you work with it, right? Actively work with it. The hindrances are not so difficult to recognize. I'm sure you can see that, right? So when they arise, right, trying to work with these different remedies, we can become much more skillful as a meditator to pick up that craft of meditation, to know which tool to pick up at any given time. You know? And because we're mindful and paying attention in this process, right, more and more, um, we become much more skillful so that we then intuitively will know um, which is the tool that we need to pick up at any time. things that uh, occurs to me um, in my own thinking about uh, the faculties and the hindrances is the opportunity for engagement in our practice and how it doesn't really serve us in any way to be passive about this practice. Right? Uh, it's very easy, I think particularly as um, we we have days which are difficult for us to sit, or we have the sense that we're just kind of getting through this, and we don't really know where we're, where we're heading. I have this passive attitude, well, as long as I show up and I'm sitting here, I think everything looks okay. I can't really tell what you're doing. You, know, you all look fine to me. I don't really know, you know what, how things are going in your, in your meditation practice. Um, but you do. You do. And um, the, the passive attitude it's not going to move us forward. It's not going to move us forward to awakening. Um, the Buddha asks us to be very actively engaged 
know, in our practice. There is effort required. And it's good to keep in mind that the thing that flows from effort is tranquility. We get something back from that effort. But if we don't put out the effort, we're going to be stuck in the same swamp over and over again and not make any movement. So summoning interest for this uh, aspect of meditation as craft, being really curious about what, what happens when I do this? What happens when I give this kind of attention in my practice? And, and really noting what, that, what occurs is so helpful and it's what will move you ahead in practice. There's a really wonderful um, book that I read earlier in the year that's called, maybe some of you have read it, uh, it's called The Overstory. And uh, it's a novel about trees. Uh, and it's a really amazing uh, novel. And uh, I found out later that the author actually uh, has a very strong and long uh, Buddhist practice. Um, and he says a number of things that I just found. I said, oh, yes, that's, I remember this. Um, and one of the things he says is, uh, anything that is um, worth doing is worth doing again and again from scratch. And that's kind of what we're being asked to do in our practice, you know, to do it from scratch. There's, there's no one who can come up to you and say, here, you get, you get to be in the sixth grade now instead of the third grade. You, know, you don't get promoted this way, and there's nobody who can give you these kinds of answers. You have to do it from scratch. You have to do it from scratch yourself. And um, we all get stuck in that effort, and, and that is the time to to seek help. You really get stuck, but there's so much of this that you can actually work through very profitably for yourself. You know, just sitting on that cushion. And in order to sustain that effort, we also need to nurture ourselves. This is not, no part of this is about sort of beating yourself up on the cushion. Um, it, It is work. It is an effort. But it's important to realize that we must have compassion for ourselves while we're doing this, otherwise we're going to fail. Right? One of the things I've noticed uh, about um, uh, particularly people in their first year or so of practice is they keep track of everything that they're doing wrong. They keep track of every mistake they made. They keep track of every time they didn't sit. They keep track of all the uh, good intentions that they, they had that have been abandoned, but they do not keep track of the times when meditation really worked for them. When they, they looked at their, when something in their life happened differently than it's ever happened before, that happened in a more skillful way, that created, that happened in a more compassionate way, that created more gladness, those times don't get remembered. Those are the very things that we need to remember in our practice. We need to see those things. When we, when we treat someone with kindness, someone that actually perhaps in the past we have not cared about at all and had a very difficult time with them, and all of a sudden for no reason that we can really explain to ourselves, we realize that we really hold this person with kindness. That is evidence of your practice. 
comes directly out of your practice. Now, it's important to note that. It's important to know that this is actually doing something. Now, there are changes taking place because they can sometimes be very subtle. We don't sense them. Right? But we need to know that this has happened to tell ourselves, I love you. Keep going. You know, keep going. This is working. I feel I'll, uh, I'll leave you with that. I have no more to say. Uh, thank you for your attention. We'll sit for a few moments. Yeah.